quick, we're going to go through the story of the gospel, the really the narrative of scriptures and leading us into Resurrection Sunday, uh, which is just four weeks away. If you can believe that, Easter is four weeks away. And so I want us to kind of dial in into that and maybe our hearts and our minds can um, be reset um, and let's focus on this message of why we're really here, why the church is, uh, why we meet on Sundays, you know, all, all these types of things. And so I want our hearts to be aligned and centered around that. And I want to look at uh, this in four aspects from, from the beginning, from where we see all of this evolve from, and then really where we'll take this is from the prophets and then into the gospels. And then after Easter, we'll start a series in the book of Mark, and we will go through it line by line as we do. Sometimes we go through books, sometimes we go through themes in the Bible. And so you get the best of both worlds. Um, let me awkwardly pause for another second and raise this because blind Bartimaeus up here. All right, Genesis chapter three, we're going to pick it up in verse one, and we're going to go through cha- um, verse 21, so quite a lot of verses, but you're in church. That's what you're supposed to do. All right, Genesis chapter three, verse one. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen above me. Let's get to work. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent that is, did God actually say, you should not eat of any fruit, any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God, he called to the man, and he said, Where are you? And he said, Well, I, I, I heard a sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman whom you gave me, um, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And, and then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts on the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not 
of, eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of the face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for it. Out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. And the man God and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Um, before we get into this, let us pray one more time. God, um, heavy task in front of me. Um, but I pray that you would be made known to everyone in this room Although it was my words that we heard, it was your word that was just spoken. So bring light to the darkness. Bring salvation to those who are lost, to those who are just kind of floundering and figure this out. God, would you just kind of rekindle, uh, just turn on a light for them spiritually? And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. A pretty heavy loaded text, but before we go through a few practical things, I, I want to kind of give slight context because context is very important. Uh, it's important for us to understand who wrote Genesis. Uh, Genesis was written ultimately by a man that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, whose name was uh, Moses. You've probably heard of Moses if you've kind of grown up in church. Moses is the guy who led the children of Israel out of uh, captivity from being enslaved by Pharaoh and his wicked army. And so what, this, what we have to do is kind of dial ourselves into as the readers would have heard this text. And so what Moses is doing is he's writing it to people who used to be enslaved. And these are millions of people who were enslaved. And so he's really kind of teaching them this new order and this new way of life, that which they have to unlearn from Pharaoh and what they were taught by the Egyptians and their pagan gods. And so here we have this view of what reality was. So in the beginning, we get uh, the, the story of creation, right? You get in the beginning was uh, God created uh, the light, right? And he's spoken, there's light, and he really just kind of is ordaining and structuring this time. And where he says, now you have evening and then you have day. And notice this real quick. I don't want to prolong this uh, context because I've got a lot to do, but this, uh, the nerd in me gets really excited when I talk about Genesis. Um, notice what it says. He says, there was evening first and then morning. We look at a structure of our day and our day begins when? In the morning. But for Moses, he's trying to tell these people, your day begins with rest. Why is that so important for the slaves or used to be slaves? Because they didn't know how to rest. They'd been slaves their whole lives. And so now Moses is kind of restructuring, reordering the way of life for them. Life does not, your day does not begin when the sun comes up, but your day begins in the evening. So you rest. That's when your day begins. And so here is the order and the structure of God. And then on day two, he begins to create more things. He creates the waters and the skies, and he does some landscaping my kind of God, right? On day three with some trees and fruits and veggies and he calls out the land. And on day four, he creates the sun and the stars. And on day five, he creates the, the water creatures and he creates the birds in the air. And on day six, he creates the land creatures, but he also creates 
man. He creates Adam and he forms him out of the dust of the earth. And behind everything, when God creates something, he doesn't say it's perfect, but he says it's what? It's good. But when he creates man, he says something different. He says what? It's very good. So God's like looking at himself. He's like, man, I'm proud of myself. You know, I mean, he's God. He gets the glory. It's his glory. He's like, man, look how awesome I am. Right? If we say that, we're we're labeled as a narcissistic, but God can say that because he created all things, right? So he's like, man, look at this. This is awesome. This is very good. But something happens. Something is not good. What is it? Well, in heaven, when, when God... Sh- when God is creating things, he, he says something pretty um, extraordinary when he says, let us make man into our image. Now, this is not a plurality of gods that he is talking to. This is what, what most scholars would believe, and I would believe that this is the trinity of God where he's, where he's talking to himself and, and Holy Spirit and Jesus, and they're, they're creating man. So, so we get this image of what community looks like and what it's supposed to be like from God, the one who orchestrated it. And so something's wrong, though. You know, Adam, um, that, that water buffalo doesn't make the best companion, does it? You know, the lion doesn't really do anything for you. So something's wrong here. You need community. And, and so God creates Eve. Out of Adam, he creates the woman. And we end in chapter 2, and, and it says something pretty pretty interesting. They were husband and wife, and they were naked and unashamed. Okay, so they are just bearing it all, and there's no shame. There's no guilt. They're living freely. This is the first nudist colony that we have record of in our history, and they're just, they're not ashamed, but something happens. Something very dramatic happens in chapter three, where we find ourselves in this text. A serpent comes. Now, we don't know much about the serpent, okay? But what we do know is that the, the serpent of old is referenced as the dragon in Revelation. So it would be best to assume that this is Satan in the form or possessing a serpent. And, and the serpent's message is just one, one message. Notice what the serpent doesn't say. The serpent doesn't say, hey, let me show you my way, right? He's very cunning, he, the serpent, this enemy, the Satan, he doesn't say, man, you, you're really missing out because this over here, this sin, sin, sin my way. Let me show you my way of sin. What does he do? He, he gets Eve to question the authority of God's word. Now, there's, here's a newsflash for you. That's the same lie um, thousands of years ago when Satan is presenting this lie. Uh, and guess what? It's the same lie that is being presented to us today. And it's, did God really say? It's a question of the authority of God's word. Well, you know, it's not really relevant for today's world. Things have changed. Culture changed. All these things have changed. Did God really say it? And did God really mean it? You know, God wasn't really thinking about 2022. You know, that's just ancient way of thought. It's the same lie. And yet we've kind of given into this, this lie of, did God really say this lie in the garden that led to what we call the fall? Did God really say and, and present to us this model of, of what what 
marriage looks like? Did, did God, does God's word really say that? Does God say that you can't hate? Does God really say you can't lust? What's wrong with a little cheating here? What's wrong with a little cheating there? It's did God really say? And it's this, this problem that we have, which has caused, it's beautiful. You don't have to take that baby nowhere. I grew up in a charismatic church, so I just feel like I'm in a charismatic church, okay? So it's just fine. So it's this problem that kind of lies in this culture we have and this question, and we question, we, we hate having authority, do we not? We don't want to have some authority over us. Why? Why is that? We don't want authority over us. It's because of pride, and we see this root of how the fall happened. So Satan deceives Eve, and then she deceives her husband. And, and we remember how chapter 2 ended? Remember they were naked and unashamed. And look at what happens in chapter 3 of verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they tried to cover themselves up, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, something interesting is happening here. We have like the, it's like the first recorded couple's argument that's ever happened. Right? God He's like, hey, where are you guys at? Now, let me just pause right there and ask you a question. Is God sovereign? Anytime God is asking a question in the Bible, it's not like he's having a dodo brain moment. It's really a test and a challenge to us to really kind of understand like, okay, God's asking me a question. I know he knows the answer. So something's not right in my life. God's not out there. He's like, Yo, where'd, it, where'd you put Adam at, Jesus? I lost him. Now, he's questioning because he knows what has happened already. And, and so you see what's happening here. Where are you guys at? God says to them, who told you that you were naked? Did you disobey me? And notice how they both blame different people. Adam blames the woman, but who else does he blame? The woman who you gave me. Eve just blames the serpent. Some scholars would suggest that this is the first time where, where a female would feel this and, and kind of feel the fear of a male dominance that's being asserted in a scene to where Adam is now viewed not just as the helpmate, right, as they were created to be, but now he is viewed as sort of a threat to Eve because she doesn't respond, well, it was his fault. She responds, no, it was Satan's fault. But, but both parties have it wrong, and both parties are trying to draw from this conclusion that I'm not the problem. You're the problem. She's the problem. The devil's the problem. I mean, my Lord, people, nothing has changed. It's always my wife's fault. It's always my husband's fault. It's always God's fault, and it's always the devil because there's a devil behind every bush. The devil made me do it. And it's never your fault because you're the holy and righteous one. And so God makes a striking curse on everything. He tells the serpent that her offspring, it, he will bruise the head of the serpent, will bruise his heel. 
a little bit of foreshadowing happening there of Christ being the offspring and the greater Adam that's taking place. And then, and then to the woman, he, he tells her that you will labor um, with pains of birthing children. And then to the man, he talks of labor pains of providing for his family. And then God makes some loincloths from animal skin. And here we are. It is the fall of mankind where darkness has entered into the hearts and mind of every man and woman through one sin, through one man. In fact, Romans chapter five would give us a universal indictment because of the one cosmic problem that happened because of Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. Now, this seems like pretty tragic and bad news, right? We have a cosmic problem. We have a universal indictment on all creation. And we are now, because of a result of the fall, we have now been, we, we are now all to blame. I mean, doesn't that sound like bad news? We're all now living under the curse. We're all now living under, and we are all now just born into this depravity, born into this fallen, broken world. And so I want to just kind of present a question. So why did God do all this then? Right? Right? Why did God create this if he knew this was going to happen? I want to draw us back to the story of creation and and point this out again, that God did not create everything perfect. He created it good. Those two are far different things. Man was very good. That doesn't mean that he, he did not have the ability to not to sin. He was a created being and... There are no created beings that are immune from having the ability to sin. So then Jesus could not have been a created being because he lived the sinless life. So why did God create all of this? That's a question. When I read this and I, I want to uh, go for the jugular at Adam when I see him one day in heaven, why did you do this? And, and just from my, my perspective, Creation was not God's full act of love. And, and I know that may come as a bummer to some of you because you think that you are the apple of God's eye, right? And you think that God loves me, he adores me, right? And you think that you are the center of the universe, but that wasn't his greatest act of love. Creating all of this wasn't his greatest act of love. The greatest act of love that he did is that he would become like us, live a sinless life, and become the ultimate sacrifice that would bring us back into communion with him so that we would have the assurance that despite what sin happens in our life, that we're still growing and we're still being sanctified into his image and nothing according to Romans 8 would be able to separate us from that love of God. That's something that pre-fall Adam didn't have. 
He didn't have that assurance of faith. He didn't have that Romans 8 assurance, that love, that nothing could separate him from the love of God. But now we do. So it would be far greater for us to, to receive Jesus Christ than it would be for us to still live in this Garden of Eden. There's a few things that I want to kind of give us and maybe can help us practically and kind of look at the gospel story, if I can. Um, Ken Ham, if you've not heard of this guy, he's a genius. He's an apologist. He's the guy that started the ark. He's the guy that, that does the Genesis things. And, and he had a, um, a, I don't want to call it a debate. He doesn't call it a debate, a, a, a conversation with, you know, the, the big atheist, Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, um, Ken Ham calls Genesis 3 the Genesis 3 problem in our culture. In our world, there is a Genesis 3 problem, and there's a problem also with this microphone. In our world, there is a Genesis 3 problem where everything that God created has now been perverted, where, where everything that God has said is good has now been perverted and has now been kind of deconstructed into this perverted way of life where God created man and woman to be together. Now that we have sin, we have some resounding question from Satan that says, did God really say that this was the order in which he would institute the family? It's the problem of Genesis 3. We, we have God's design for marriage and sex, and now we have lust, and now we have pornography, and now we have men and women flirting with someone who isn't their spouse, and now we have hate, and now we have injustices, and now we have addictions, and now we have pain, and now we have sickness, and now we have suffering. It is all a result of the Genesis 3 problem. We have, we have murder now. It's a Genesis 3 problem. It's a result of the fall. So the fall ushered in this sin and it's created this cosmic problem. Again, Satan says, did God really say this? Satan, again, tries to offer all of us worldly pleasures, sex, power, fame. But where does it lead? Does it lead to ultimate satisfaction? It, it leads just to a life of misery and death. It's what Satan tempted Eve in the garden. It's what Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. I'll give you all of these things. You can have them as if like Jesus needed Satan to give him anything. And he's still presenting to us that same lie. Did God really say I could give you power and wealth and all of these things. And it does seem like, if I could just be honest with you uh, this morning, it does seem like an enticing message, doesn't it? That you could have power, that you could have um, wealth, and that you can have health, and you can have all of these enticing worldly things. Because someone who would tell you that money doesn't buy you happiness is a liar. Amen, church? Now, I'm not swimming in the money, so I don't really know about that kind of lifestyle. But let me be straight with you. You give me a million dollars, I'm the happiest joker you've ever met in your life. I mean, that would be incredible. 
but it's the same damning message that leads you to this life of, that is unfulfilling. And it does seem like an enticing message. And I think the church has, in a way, bought into this by kind of softening up our message. Like, we don't really want to talk about, you know, like how your need of salvation. We just want to talk about the love of Jesus, right? Let's just talk about how Jesus loves you. You know, we don't want to talk about how the punishment of, you know, not entering into that communion of salvation with Jesus, where that would lead you. And, oh, we don't want to talk about that, Peter, because that may run people away. So what we've done is we've given into the lie of the enemy, and we've softened up our message. We think, you know, how God's word needs like Botox and a butt lift or something like that, just to make it, make it sound like it's more enticing for us. So let's leave out all of the controversial things. Let's leave out all of the things where, you know, where, where it talks about sin and that type of sin. And let's just talk about all the good things. Because we've bought into that same lie. You know, does God really mean that? You know, contextually, is this what it's really talking about here? And we think we're nerds, and we're not. We're turds, man. And it's, we have distorted this view and this message of God. And, and hear me, and right now what you're seeing in our culture today is the church being exposed to this madness. You're seeing churches all across the world who have softened up the message of Jesus Christ and his gospel message. They're being exposed. And I think that's God's mercy and grace to his church. And what he is doing is he is separating the sheep, the, the sheep from the goats. And it's all back to that same lie. It goes back to that same lie. Did God really say... You know, and I, I hear the argument to this. Well, you know, well, Jesus, he went to the whores and he went to the, the low lives. And yes, he did, but he ministered to them. And when he would go to these people, they were transformed by his power. So it wasn't like Jesus was like, hey, let's go to the keg party. Pass the beer, homie. And it wasn't like Jesus was just going just so he could party with the sinners. When Jesus would go there, there would be transformation. Now, let me present to us this, this foreshadowing and this, this gospel message that's taking place here and, and, and kind of give us the bad news because what we see is we see really bad news because immediately, right after they sin, you see a few things happening. You see guilt, you see shame, and you see the blame game, okay? You see these three things kind of immediately, like not only do we get the consequences of sin, but now we get these internal consequences of, of now we feel shame, now we feel this guilt, and now we, feel, now we feel like it's not my fault, it's everybody else's fault. They try to clean up their, their mess in response to this guilt, in response to this shame that they're you know, it's just this oppressive shame and guilt that they feel. What do they do in their guilt and their shame? That they try to cover themselves up. So what is this again? This is the first, this is the first recording of works-based theology that we get that we'll find out in just a second that God is about to correct. 
So in their efforts, they try to make themselves look like there's nothing to see here, God. So let me take this giant fiddly fig leaf and cover myself up so that nobody else can see my shame or guilt. I mean, isn't that what we do? Nothing to see here. I've been sinning my whole life. I've been into this little, you know, this whatever type of lifestyle, but I'm going to cover it up the best way I can so that nobody else sees the real me. It's a problem of, of works-based theology where we think that we have uh, to clean ourselves up in order for God to be able to look at us as a holy and righteous child. So we, we play that game and we try to cover ourselves up in our guilt and our shame. And then we get this other issue that's happening and it's this blame game that they do. You know, like everybody else is the problem. It's not me. I mean, good Lord, like when you're reading through this, you're like, when was, this was written like thousands of years ago? Are you sure this wasn't written like today? Like because culture wants to feed into your brain that you're not the problem, right? You're not the problem. It's not your fault, honey. It's just the way you've been raised. It's your mama's fault. It's your daddy's fault. It's your husband's fault. Because we all, we all know he's lame, right? It's your wife's fault. It's your children's fault. Now, part of that is true. It is everybody else's fault except for you. Right? I mean, that's what culture, like, you're not the problem. You are so perfect. And the world revolves around you. And then in Colossians uh, I'm about to throw this thing in a minute. In Colossians chapter one, we, we get this, this verse that talks about how we have been alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And, and so who's been alienated? Who's hostile in their mind? Who is doing the evil deeds? Did it say your neighbor was once alienated? Did it say your spouse was once hostile? Did it say that your children are doing evil deeds? No, you are. And throughout scripture, there's always this universal indictment that is not necessarily pointed to a community, but pointed to an individual. So we have this problem of sin to where we want to go into this garden Genesis 3 problem mentality where everybody is the problem except for you. But thank God, that's not the end of the story in Genesis 3. Because let me tell you something. Matthew Thor, if I were God, and praise be unto the Lord that I'm not, right? I would have just smolted them jokers and just started afresh. Man, forget you. Zap, zap, bam. As if nothing to see here, nothing happened. But that's not the loving God that we have. They tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, and here you get the first recording of the grace and mercy of God. The, the word says that he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's the first image of an animal being sacrificed to cover the guilt, the shame, and the blame of their sin right here in the garden. Like, Mm, I appreciate your efforts, right? He doesn't even really appreciate it. Like he sees their efforts in clothing them and he's like, you know what? That's not good enough. Let me clothe you 
to cover your sin. And then what God has done for us, the ultimate sacrifice that he's made. Let me talk about sacrifice just for two minutes and then I'll be done. This is the first sacrifice we see in the Bible. And now we'll see this uh, theme of sacrificing happening uh, throughout the scripture. And if you're new to church, like I know that sounds like totally cultish. Like, wait a minute, y'all gonna pull out a uh, goat and start sacrificing? No, thank God we're not under that anymore, okay? In Old Testament, they would take, it was, it was God's command for them to take an animal sacrifice, a lamb, and, and to cover their sins with their blood. The lamb would likely be the animal used for sacrifice. And, and for us, it doesn't really have as heavy meaning, but for the Jews, it did. You had the Passover lamb in Exodus where they would take the blood of the lamb over their door, doorpost so that the death angel would pass by and that they would not be touched. You had the lamb for consecration in Exodus 29, 38 through 42. You had the suffering servant lamb to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, chapter seven. And in Revelation is a song about a slaughtered lamb. He's a lamb, but he's really a lion. And you got this weird uh, illustration of who Jesus is. And then the lamb represents innocence and gentleness. Other lambs have been offered by men, but now God is providing the lamb, and you have a lamb for an individual in Genesis chapter 22, and, and then it feathers on the lamb for the family in Exodus 12, lamb for a nation in Leviticus chapter 16 for the day of atonement, and then you have what appears in John chapter 1, the lamb who John looks over, and he sees a sea of people, and he sees, and he locks eyes with Jesus Christ, and he says, behold, the lamb of God who is finally here to take away the sins of the world. You had this lamb, this animal skin that was covering the sins of Adam and Eve. And now the gospel message is, is that Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice and that he was the lamb that was led to the slaughterhouse and he died on a criminal's cross. And now we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. We don't have to cover up our shame. We don't have to cover up our guilt or our, our messes with loincloths anymore. We don't have to make ourselves look good so that God is approved of us. Like think about this, this message of Ducatism, like how this strikes an end to that. That you'll never be good enough, but that's okay. You, you can never cover up your sin in a way that looks good to God. It's just not good enough. So insert Jesus Christ who became sin and, and took on the wrath of God so that those who believe in him, when God sees you on the final day of judgment, he doesn't see you as who you are, but he sees the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed and clothed upon you. Genesis chapter three is a prophetic image of what is to come, that one day there will be a lamb who will be slain for the sins of the world. And that lamb that was slain is visible in Revelation chapter five, but he's not just the suffering and slain lamb, but he is ruling and reigning on his throne. 
the bad news is that sin has entered into the world, but the good news is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to redeem us and make all things right in our life. We can't, but he did. That's the gospel message. It's good news. It's good news because it invaded that darkness and invaded the fall of man and made all things right. That's the gospel.